The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you would. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, continuing our study in this great letter, one of the earliest letters of the New Testament, written to a young church that probably had only been in the gospel for a matter of weeks or months. Paul had been there for a few weeks, and then he had had to leave, being pushed out by persecution, and was writing from Corinth, further south and was writing to them to confirm them in the faith and to help them to grow in Christ, in their newfound faith in Christ. Reading today, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the Word of God. Every believer is called to seek to walk in a way pleasing to God. You and I are called to walk pleasing to God. It is God's will, we would say, that you grow in pleasing God. Now, we know that in one sense, the Christian is pleasing to God in the ultimate, comprehensive sense, only through Jesus Christ. We know that our own works, our own good deeds are as filthy rags before God, but We are pleasing to God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But having said that, the Bible frequently uses this phrase that you walk in a way pleasing to God to talk about Christian growth, which is not all or none, which is a process, which is an incremental thing that Christians are to grow in 
living a life pleasing to God, knowing that their status, their standing before God is always clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. So as we talk about pleasing to God, we know that it doesn't contradict the gospel in this sense. Paul begins chapter 4, and it's an abrupt change. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's talked about his time with them. He's reminded them of, of what he was like among them and how he preached the gospel to them and how he and his fellow apostles and companions were gracious to them and seeking their well-being. He, he longed to see them again. He's talking about their need to stand in the Lord in the face of suffering and all of these things. And, there, and there's a, a solid change in chapter 4 when he starts to talk about problems and issues that they need to face. Probably it's because Timothy has come to him and told them how the Thessalonians are doing and that there's this problem and there's this concern and they maybe even had sent, sent written questions to Paul. We don't know. But he begins to address these things in chapter 4. And he uses the word finally then in the sense of not that this is the last thing he's going to say, but he's in a sense saying, now let me turn to these matters that concern how you walk to please the Lord. And he says that uh, he's told them these things before. He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Clearly, he's saying here, when we were with you, in those few weeks we were with you, we told you these things. So not only did Paul preach the gospel about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save, he also instructed them about what we would say are ethics or moral imperative, the the commandments, the will of God, the law of God in how Christians are to show forth their faith in Christ through their works. As James would say, faith without works is dead. He's not speaking of works here as in contrast to faith, he's talking about works as the fruit of faith. And notice how in verse 2, he describes it as a very authoritative instruction. He says, for you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He's adding weight and authority. He's saying these instructions are not just our good advice. They're through the Lord Jesus. Jesus. They're ultimately from your Lord and God, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to commend them. In, in, at the end of verse 1, he commends them, just as I read, just as you are doing. So in other words, even though they are very young in the Lord, they're already showing fruit of faith in Christ. But he not only commends them, he also encourages and exhorts them to grow, to do so more and more. The end of verse 1, that you do so more and more. And we see this down in verse 10 as well when he, when he reminds them of the commandment to love one another. He says, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And then in verse 3, He reminds them that this is actually the will of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Stop and think about the marvelous balance of God's word here as Paul begins to introduce the subject of practical matters and their 
need to walk pleasing to the Lord. Much error in the Christian life and in the Christian church is due to lack of balance, to imbalance in the Christian life. Paul is supremely balanced here. Paul has preached the gospel to them, but he also instructs them about Christian living. John Stott, in his commentary on this text, talks about the gospel lived out in the Christian life. That's his heading for this text. It's not as if Christian living and instruction about moral and ethical behavior contradicts the gospel at all. Paul is marvelously balanced, and he knows that walking in a way pleasing to God requires knowledge, knowing what these instructions are, and it requires effort. You must strive to walk in a way pleasing to God, but that doesn't contradict salvation by grace through faith alone and the the powerful and present work of the Spirit in our lives. But as he would later write, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the God who is at work within you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And so we see balance here that this is not to be mere self-effort, That would be emphasizing too much just the instructions. It's grace-centered. It's gospel-based. He's preached the gospel to them. But it's also, on the other side, not to be passive. These believers need instruction. They need to give themselves to obeying the Word of God and the instructions that Paul gives through Jesus Christ. And also notice the balance here that he makes it clear that growth is necessary and possible. Christians can be growing in their Christian life. In fact, there's a necessity that faith be expressed in works, in a changed life, in the transformation Jesus Christ is bringing about. But he urges them, do so more and more. Do you know, you and I never get beyond that verse, whether it's verse 2 where he talks about that or whether verse 1 where he talks about it or where it's verse 10 when he's speaking about love. We can always say, great, you're loving as God calls you to, but do so more and more. We never get beyond that more and more in the Christian life. And so we must seek to walk in a way pleasing to the Lord. Thessalonians needed to hear this exhortation and encouragement, and you and I need to hear it as well. You and I do not essentially live for people or before others, even though certainly we're concerned about loving others and pleasing others in different ways. But the instructions of the Bible are from our God. Paul emphasizes that. These are instructions from the Lord Jesus. These are instructions from our great King and God, our Savior and Lord, in His grace to us. My dad gave me a letter that he had written to me. It was a letter he wrote to me. He gave this letter to me about 10 years ago. You know how you're cleaning out files and you find things. He had found this letter about 10 years ago. And it was a letter he wrote to me when I was four years old. And he had his first open heart surgery when I was four. And he knew that there was risk. He knew that he might not come home. So he wrote a letter to me and sealed it to Johnny, you know. And and so... 50 years after the fact, he gives this to me and says, oh, this is what I wrote to you when you were four. And it hadn't been opened yet because obviously he came through the surgery well and it got stuck in a file where it was. And I opened it and it was a letter, a very touching letter to a four-year-old boy 
just basically affirming and assuring me of his love for me and giving me instructions for life, telling me, you know, be a good boy, obey your mom, do these kind of things. And I was really touched. I still have it at home, stuck in a file again somewhere. But um, just think about a letter from someone who loves you, is concerned for your well-being. I look at this when I read 1 Thessalonians 4, and I think about Paul laying this out to them. These are instructions from your Savior, from your God. It's not something we should take as harsh or oppressive. These are, this is a letter from the God who has loved us, the lover of our souls, Emmanuel, the day spring from on high who has come to visit us and, as we sang, to, to lift that burden of our sin. And so you and I should not take this in a negative way. We should take it in a good way. And we must remind ourselves to seek to walk in a way pleasing to the Lord. Before the face of God. We live before God. And then the text goes on to speak of various specifics. There are two main specifics here. First of all, verses 3 to 8, which is about sexual immorality and maintaining sexual purity. That's going to be the focus of our sermon here. I want to go through that. And then we're not going to focus on verses 9 through 12, which have to do with brotherly love. That could be another whole sermon, in fact. But, and it, he talks about brotherly love as it's fleshed out to in the area of the, of the need to work, because there was an idea among the Thessalonians that if the Lord was going to return soon, maybe they wouldn't need to work anymore. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to focus on six points about the will of God, your sanctification to avoid sexual immorality from verses 3 through 8. So our first point is this. Now he gets to the nuts and bolts. It is God's will that you avoid sexual immorality. He speaks that general principle at the beginning of verse 3, and then he applies it in a specific point, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Don't we all want to know God's will? Young people especially are often wrestling with God's will, wanting to know God's will for their life, and usually they're thinking about terms of big decisions they have to make. What college am I going to go to? What career should I choose? Who is the right husband or wife for me? Uh, What about this big decision I need to make? And of course, God doesn't write it in the sky as we might wish that he would. He uses sanctified common sense according to the directions of his word that we're to apply to our lives. And sometimes we struggle with a decision that maybe involves two alternatives that both seem wise. And we know we're called to make the wisest decision we can as we pray and trust the Lord and get advice. But those are decisions about things that the Bible doesn't clearly state about. It doesn't say whether you should take uh, a job as, as an accountant with this firm or that firm, or whether you should live in Pennsylvania or Maryland. Now, we know Pennsylvania is the best, so there's no doubt about that. But um, God doesn't speak that way. But God does speak clearly and emphatically about the moral imperatives of his word, how we are to live to please God. And this one is very clear. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There's no doubt It's got the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ behind it. It's the way to walk to please God. Sexual immorality means any sexual sin outside of 
marriage. In other words, the right expression for sexual intimacy is within marriage. Sexual sin is any expression of that outside of marriage. It includes lots of things. And it includes both action and thought. Now, the world says, that's okay. In fact, the world often says, that's beautiful. Why do you say that's wrong? But we know here from God's word that it says, avoid it. It is wrong. It is not God's will. It is not something that's complex. You are to abstain from sexual immorality. You are to even flee from it, 1 Corinthians six eighteen says. Flee sexual immorality. It's like the example of Joseph in Potiphar's household, who, when he was uh, being tempted by Potiphar's wife, fled, leaving even his cloak in her hands. So first and foremost, it is God's will that we avoid sexual immorality. But we might ask, well, how? How do you do that? This is where our second point comes in. You must avoid sexual immorality by exercising self-control. Notice verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. There's a point in... J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, where there's a battle at Helm's Deep, this great fortress that's never been breached in the history of Middle-earth. But in that battle, some sorcery takes place, and there's a great explosion, and there's a great breach in the wall. And it leads to the defeat, almost, of Helm's Deep. I bring that illustration up because Proverbs 25:28 says, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken down. It's like if there's a wall around an ancient city and there's a a, a gaping hole in it, then the enemy's going to rush right in. The city's going to fall. It's going to be destroyed. What a terrible thing it must have been in those days to live in an ancient city like that that was under siege. Can you imagine how frightening that would be to think the city might fall, and then what are they going to do to us? This proverb is saying our hearts are like a city wall, and if you lack self-control, it's like there's a big hole in the wall. It reminds me of another proverb, Proverb 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. God has given us desires that are not necessarily wrong if they're directed in the proper course, the desire to eat food, the desire to sleep. Sexual desire is part of that. Of course, the problem is that all of our desires are impaired and affected by sin. So now, they're not always in their proper place. If you eat and enjoy it, you know that you can eat in excess, and that's the sin of gluttony. You can enjoy sleeping, and you can sleep in excess, and that's the sin of slothfulness, laziness. And the same with sexual desire. It's sexual desire is fine and good when rightly fulfilled in marriage, but anything other than that is sin. So God calls us to abstain from sexual immorality by maintaining self-control. That is not mere self-effort. That has to be self-control that is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. But we're also commanded to exercise self-control. 
And actually, self-control for the Christian is now possible because of Jesus Christ. Because of both his past work on the cross, by which he once and all triumphed over sin and broke the power of sin in our lives, but also because of his present power working in our lives as we seek to please him. But we must work at it. We must work out what God has worked in us. And Titus chapter 2 tells us that the grace of God makes it possible for us to say no. In Titus 2.11 it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. In other words, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace trains us to say no. Grace enables us to exercise self-control. So when our desires begin to go wrong, then we know we must repent, turn from that wrong direction, act in faith on Jesus Christ, cry out to him in our hearts and say, Lord, give me your grace in this moment. I need your help. In other words, self-control and true transformation is rooted in the grace of God, but also requires the believer's full cooperation and effort. I remember when a famous TV evangelist fell into terrible sin, and um, this was 20, 30 years ago, and I remember it because he was on television all the time, and when this took place, he said the demons made him do it. And really, I thought it was a complete cop-out at the time because he was denying, in a sense, his own responsibility in this. He needed to exercise self-control. John Owen talks about it this way. You must vigorously oppose the first actings of sin. I like that phrase. Vigorously oppose the first actings of sin. In other words, God does not guarantee that temptation won't come to us in various forms. Jesus Christ himself in the wilderness was tempted three times, whether that was by an audible voice from Satan or whether the voice was in his mind. He wasn't able to completely stop the temptation from coming in the first place. And so it is with us. We may have thoughts that come to us, but we need to vigorously oppose the first actings of sin acting in repentance and faith on Christ to exercise self-control. Self-control is not mere willpower. We must do so by faith in Christ, repenting of wrong thoughts and asking Jesus Christ for his divine enabling. And so we must abstain from sexual immorality by exercising self-control. We must beware lest the wall of our heart be broken down. Thirdly, we find that sexual immorality only harms others and harms yourself as well. If we go to the beginning of verse 6, we see Paul describe it in this way, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So in other words, sexual sin is somehow wronging a brother or sister. The philosophy of the world is along these lines. Sexual immorality is fine. It's okay as long as you love the other person. And don't we all know that the movies, TV shows are all full of this? In fact, it just permeates our society now. Living together before marriage is fine. If you're in love, that's fine. 
But actually, what the Bible is saying, that all such activity and all these kinds of actions are not true love. They are actually contrary to true love. They are actually wronging the other person. Sexual sin in marriage, if you're married and you sin in this way in some way, that affects your spouse. It wrongs your spouse. It takes away and robs a spouse of their trust in you or their security or intimacy. Sexual sin before marriage robs that person or that person's future spouse of that as well. And so it's clearly a sin against another individual, and it's hurtful to yourself as well. Sexual immorality is sin, and it hurts. There's a great biblical example of this in, first, in 2 Samuel 13, where David's oldest son, um, Amnon, is um, in love, he thinks, with his half-sister, Tamar. And 2 Samuel 13 describes his sin against her because he had such strong desire for her. And then afterwards, it says that afterwards, he hated her with a greater hatred more than he had loved her. It's a great uh, Bible um, diagnosis of Amnon's heart there. How, and the truth is, he didn't love her at all. He lusted after her. This wasn't true love at all, or he wouldn't have hated her afterwards. And it destroys Tamar's life. And it brings this terrible destruction because then Absalom engineers a way to kill him eventually and brings great division to David's family. Don't be brainwashed by the constant barrage of this world's philosophy that says that sexual immorality is just fine. Sexual immorality is destructive. In fact, it's interesting, if you read Proverbs 5 and 7, where there's such wise instruction to this young man that the book is addressed to, to a young individual, it's interesting that in chapter 5, when it's giving warnings against sexual immorality, it concludes this way, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. What an apt description of the destructive nature of sexual sin. Held fast in the cords of his sin. Dies for lack of discipline. Led astray. And the same way with the end of Proverbs 7, when it talks about the adulteress. And it it exhorts the son to listen to him. He says, For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Fourth, we find sexual immorality brings judgment. Sexual immorality actually brings God's judgment in some form. Look with me at the end of verse 6. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, when we read a verse like this, we think, why does Scripture bring the judgment of God into a passage written to Christians? Because Christians are saved. They're saved from the judgment of God. They don't have to worry about the judgment of God. Why does Scripture bring this in? And it's interesting 
there are a number of verses where connected to sexual immorality, the Bible specifically talks about God's judgment. I'll just read a few of them. Matthew 5, 30, where Jesus is talking about adultery and even lust in your heart is the same. And he says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And he concludes with these words, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. There's that reference to God's judgment. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, where Paul is speaking of this subject as well, talking about the fact that some of them were um, idolaters, adulterers, and so forth. He begins by saying, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So there's this idea of judgment there as well. Another one is Galatians 5, 19 to 21. And again, just reading the end of that. Um, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and he lists many of the works of the flesh. I warn you as I warned before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then one more in Ephesians 5, verse is 3 to 7, where Paul is again talking about sexual immorality and he's talking about sexual sin should not be one named among you as is proper among saints. And he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or, or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Powerful words. You could also turn to Colossians 3 or Hebrews 13, other places as well. Why is there this New Testament emphasis on judgment? The Lord is the avenger of all such. And, and the word avenger there isn't connote doesn't connote a personal vindictiveness. It connotes God's justice, God's righteous judgment and justice being displayed. Think of it this way. These verses are telling us that sin leads to spiritual death of some sort. It may lead to temporal judgments. In other words, consequences, judgments in this life consequences that God brings on you. But if you belong to Christ, they're his fatherly discipline. But for the true Christian, even though judgment tends to lead to death, God intervenes. God does not allow that to continue down the pathway ultimately to apostasy and hell. No, for the true Christian, one is born of the Spirit. God keeps such a one by the power of God through faith. In other words, he doesn't let us continue down that pathway of sin, which ultimately leads to judgment. But it's a very sobering thought. Paul didn't think that what he says here in 1 Thessalonians 4 contradicted the gospel that he preached to the Thessalonians. He's saying, no, sexual immorality is something you must keep in your mind as a very dangerous thing. And it's interesting that so often the mention of God's wrath and not inheriting the kingdom of God in the New Testament is closely linked to sexual immorality. 
And that brings us to our fifth point. Sexual immorality is contrary to the very purpose of God's calling in the Christian life. We see that in verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. This is looking at the positive side of it. We tend to look at sin in a negative sense and God's call to sexual purity as a negative calling, but Paul is saying it's a positive thing. God is not the cosmic killjoy. God delights to give his people life. And the nature of our calling is this. Be who you are. You have been united to Jesus Christ through faith in him. Live that way. I think of Teddy Roosevelt as a young man. His father died when he was in Harvard, and he was still a very young man. But there was this sense that Teddy Roosevelt had that he had been taught by his father who he was. And typically on a Sunday night, his father would take him to the mission, one of the missions in the New York City area where their house was, and would and Teddy Roosevelt, the young Teddy Roosevelt, would help his dad minister to the poor, the cast out, help him leading the songs, things like that, help them, help this mission work. It was what a Roosevelt did. And Teddy Roosevelt was imbued with that from his youth. So even after his father died, there was a very strong sense of that in his life. So for the Christian, be who you are. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That phrase, in holiness, not so much as a separation from sin, that's true, but more it's a separation unto God. It has to do with knowing God, with fellowshipping with God, becoming like God, whose primary and overarching characteristic is the holy God. So sexual immorality is contrary to the very purposes of God. And so finally, we see that sexual immorality is a rejection of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Sexual sin is a disregarding of God. And the loving, gracious God who, present tense here, gives his Holy Spirit to you. Yes, he's given us his Holy Spirit once and for all. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, but this is talking about and emphasizing and highlighting the present activity of the Holy Spirit. God keeps giving you his Holy Spirit in a powerful, blessed way. And so Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit with various kinds of sins. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. That's at the end of this book. Have you ever given someone a gift that they reject? We get this with the grandkids if we give them clothing. You know, oh, let's open it. They open the gift. Oh, clothes. Give me the next gift. What's that? You know, wait. You know, their mom tries to make them say thank you and appreciate that. So we just, we don't tend to give clothing anymore that way. Um, think of what an amazing gift you might want if somebody to give you. You know, teenagers might say, just think if my dad would give me the newest sports car. You know, I could drive to school in, or the newest iPhone maybe, or some technological gizmo of some kind. Maybe for you, something else comes to mind. Patty and I have been talking about whether she needs to upgrade cello. You know, she's got like a beginning level cello, but we asked someone 
whose father had a cello that was really nice. And they told us, oh, yeah, we'd sell it to you for $40,000. And it's like, okay, I think we won't take that step right now. We'll think about that. Um, but all sin, to some degree, is a rejection of God, a rejection of God's gift of himself to us. It's a disregarding, not of man, but of God. And the emphasis here, especially with sexual immorality, I think ties into 1 Corinthians 6, where it talks about our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies, which are God's. So sexual immorality is a disregarding of the gift of the Holy Spirit, of God himself, the greatest gift. He gives the Holy Spirit to us. But there's a positive implication of this last verse, and I want to conclude with this. And that is, it is by the present power of the Holy Spirit that the believer is able to more and more die to sinful self and live to Jesus Christ, to die and put to death sinful desires and live for right desires that God imparts by the Spirit. It is by the power of the Spirit that we're able to mortify, put to death sin. This is God's pattern of transformation in our lives. And we must keep this ultimate hope before us that as we work out our salvation and as we seek to exercise self-control in a society that has gone crazy, that we have the assurance that our true destiny as children of God is going to be fulfilled. There is a coming a day when Jesus Christ will appear. That's coming soon in the book here. And that that ultimate hope of every true believer is the anchor that keeps us founded upon the rock. And it's that eternal perspective that helps us to see through the self-serving nature of wrong desires and sexual sin and helps us to long and to fight and to war and to cry out to God for his help in the battle day by day. And it's that hope that enables us to keep going in the pursuit of holiness in our lives. I've told the story once before, I know, but in 1805, Lewis and Clark had been on their expedition to the West Coast for over a year of grueling journey up the Missouri and then over the Bitterroots Mountain. An amazing journey. And they were close to the Pacific, almost there in November of 1805, and the days were getting long, and it was getting cold, and the weather was getting harsh, and they were in the Columbia River estuary, and they were at Point Elise, which is known now, and they were on a little tract of sand, gravelly sand. They were on that little piece of land because the river was so wild and so dangerous, they could not go on. Great, great trees crashing on the shore. They, They could barely protect themselves. Their clothes were shredded. It was raining night and day. They were hungry. They were weak. They were tired. And they were just very close to their destination, getting to the Pacific. Well, finally, they managed to get out of that difficult situation. And the account of it, of William Clark, when they get to the Pacific and Clark sees it, he says, oh, the joy. They had been pursuing that course for a year and a half. Finally, they see the Pacific, and it was a a moment of joy. Christian, God gives you the Holy Spirit 
so you can press on in your journey. So that one day when you see Jesus Christ face to face, you can respond, oh, the joy. And so this is the way to please God. This is the way to walk in a way pleasing to God, putting to death all sin by the power of God, more and more living for Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for the clear instruction you give us. But we know that it takes more than just knowing this and understanding this. We may know it well, but still fight the battle day by day. In so many areas of our lives where we're called to self-control, where we're called to put aside selfishness, where we're called to speak words of love, where we're called to act in a loving way, where we're called to pray for others, we think of the ways that we fall short, but we thank you that we are not what we once were, and we pray for you to more and more make us like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.